Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. This week, I had the pleasure of chatting with Samuel Hofler. Sam is a 10-year cannabis industry professional and current head grower of Proof Cultivar. Sam is finishing an agronomy degree at Oregon State University and focuses primarily on nutrient management, irrigation techniques, and cannabis crop production. Sam has created a novel cultivation model at Proof Cultivar while building one of the most advanced and informative data sets on cannabis nutrient values to date. Sam's long-term goals include establishing optimal nutrient ranges for cannabis, creating an open platform for industry professionals to share knowledge, and to continue pursuing a lifelong passion for researching cannabis cultivation. Now on to the show. Hey Sam, thanks for coming on the show today. Absolutely, thanks for having me, happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited we get a chance to talk. Uh, I know I got to come down and visit your facility uh, a few months ago now and see you guys in production, but uh, let's go ahead and give listeners a little background into uh, who you are and what you do over at Proof. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Sam Hofler. Um, I'm currently head grower at Proof Cultivar in Portland, Oregon. Um, we're a pretty large indoor organic cannabis facility, and um, my background with cannabis is a little over 10 years now. I grew up in Pennsylvania and was introduced to cannabis pretty early on and started to grow it almost immediately. Um, and I've kind of bounced around the country operating a number of different facilities from working with Penn State and tissue culture and greenhouses there to um, Southern Oregon and, and large 50-acre uh, cannabis and hemp operations and, and mushroom cultivation down in Southern California. And I bounced around and ended up at Proof a little over a year and a half ago um, and have been working ever since to try to revolutionize and overhaul the, the cultivation model that was going on there. And have since landed on a new program, um, part of it, uh, due to Kiss Organic Soil, which we're super happy with. And, um, yeah, now, now in Portland, Oregon and having a blast and operating one of the, the greatest facilities I've got to work with. Yeah, this facility is, uh, quite technologically advanced in a lot of ways. And yet you guys are also facing some other challenges, um, because of the way the facility was generally laid out. Um, I was going to get into this later, but since you mentioned the technological aspect, let's just, you want to kind of describe uh, some of those things that you have at Proof and how, um, you know, how they've been either useful or not as useful as you would have thought when they were originally installed years ago? Yeah, that's a really um, interesting topic. Uh, Proof kind of started out with this really grand ideal of being able to take cannabis cultivation to the next level of of scientific production and technological production. And so there was a lot of automation early on back in the day um, from custom built robots that lift trays up and down and move them along transfer line systems to um, auto pot washers and auto dirt fillers, auto planters, kind of the whole purpose was to be able to stage plants, get them in a room, and then the automation kind of takes care of the rest. And for all the ambition, I think, most cannabis growers that have grown for a number of years know that it's 
really hard to automate a human touch when it comes to cannabis cultivation and, and being able to produce really great craft quality cannabis automated just isn't something that's always worked out. And so we've slowly and quite painfully over the year kind of ripped out all of the initial automation and, and gone back to just hands-on labor and hands-on process. And at this point in the grow, everything is done by hand, everything from propagation to um, about half of our watering to um, transplanting and pruning and topping, harvesting, weighing, um, packaging, trimming, everything is done by hand. Uh, there's really not a lot of automation that goes on at all. I think the the little bit of you know technology that we do utilize now is is more for data collection and trying to control everything around the plants rather than the plants themselves. So we we work really hard to use some custom operating systems and softwares for our climate control to to deliver accurate climates and set points um, to the rooms themselves and then to collect some really high-end data regarding irrigation and try to bring some of these new crop steering principles and merge them into an organic methodology and and make them work so it's this really interesting blend of uh, starting out at high technology and then kind of working our way backwards to really where the basics are at and trying to utilize some of the the basic agronomic technology that's been around for a number of years, um, things like tensiometers is super important um, in the program that I've, that I've designed and just automated irrigation as much as possible through trip lines and climate control and being able to track those trends has been really impactful versus, you know, things that I haven't found to be worth the money are, you know, the auto fillers, the auto pots, um, things that, try to automate the labor aspect of it for you. It's really difficult to to eliminate that from your program, I found. Yeah, you're one of the few facilities I've seen that's kind of gone the other way where you, you started like highly technologically yeah. advanced and actually have moved the other direction as you guys have tried to pursue better craft cannabis, which is really interesting. And um, the other thing that I, w- I would possibly highlight is you know a lot of the stuff that's used horticulturally f- as, as technological tools don't necessarily translate as well to cannabis um, it seems like uh, some of the plants and, and you can correct me on this if I'm wrong um, cannabis seems to be a little bit more sensitive in terms of how it's handled versus some of these other uh, you know ornamental ornamental crops that we're mass producing for the you know in these greenhouses and industries what what are your experiences with it? Right. Yeah, that's it, it's more difficult to uniformly take technology and just apply it to cannabis. You know, with with ornamentals and these mass produced crops in greenhouses, there's kind of this one size fits all method to technology. You come in and you just create a uniform environment across the entire space. And you're able to do all of your processes without really having to, to change much versus cannabis is very, uh, you know, every plant is, is unique and alive and growing and individual and the way you shape it and form it and work with it over its life cycle really impacts the product on the, on the end. And it's actively changing in its climate. I mean, the, the climate change from propagation to veg to flower to mid, late and early flowers, just, it's really different all the way through. And so, there, yeah, you're right. There's not a lot that you can take from 
maybe these mass-produced industries that have been around for much longer and try to adopt that technology. And, and furthermore, it makes it a bit of a challenge because these days most large companies, whether it be ornamentals or other um, you know, mass-produced farms, they're, they're trying to focus on the, the money side of it first. They're trying to be as economical as possible, and it's really hard to take that and apply it to an organic setting. You know, I've, I've run into this issue with trying to adopt volumetric water content measurements and things of that nature to kind of a container-grown soilless media for cannabis. It just doesn't always work out the same. And so there's a lot of adoption and adaption that has to happen whenever you try to take something from another industry and apply it to cannabis. Yeah, and let's be clear, your your yields are are still quite good. I believe you guys are the top producer in Oregon, I think is what Jeremy was telling me, um, if I remember correctly. Yeah, we're, we're still pretty good. It's been a up and down roller coaster. Um, for 2020, we were the largest indoor producer by volume, like how much we produce for the majority of the year. And then it gets a little difficult uh, late season when all these outdoor farms start coming in and mass producing crops. But it, it took a long while, maybe a little bit of history about the grow is we, we didn't start out organic. We started out as a mineral two-part fertilizer, you know, 52-gallon pots on a single tray, and it wasn't good. Uh, and then Jeremy um, brought in a wonderful cultivation design, Jeremy Plum, um, for those wondering, and created a really awesome organic program. And it took about two years to just to reach this point where it was extremely dialed in and record breaking and hitting just massive number output um, from our rooms and, and really happy with it. And um, we're kind of diving into another topic here, but we, we went through some pretty massive changes in 2021 that were forced upon us. That is inevitably how we ended up in this new program to, to um, really have to work our way backwards and try to reach those numbers again. And it's been extremely difficult, but really happy with where we're at. Yields are, are, are doing really well and um, yeah, happy to kind of walk through that transition that we had to go through if you want to dive down that rabbit hole. Yeah, I think that's a good segue. I do want to come back and talk to you about what technological uh, tools you found sure. are most useful yeah. in your grow. So I'll, I just want to shelve that one. But I remember Jeremy reached out to me towards the end of last year, a little bit panicked, like, hey, we need soil right away. Um, <laughs> We were fortunately able to get you guys uh, what you needed at the time, but um, basically, and I'm not going to name any names here, but you had been working uh, with a, a bottled nutrient line and um, apparently yep. they changed their formulation during COVID without telling you. And as I understand, that created very high levels of chlorides uh, in the in the soil or in your, yeah. in your solution. And that, um, do you want to talk a little bit about what effects that had on the plants for people who aren't familiar with uh chloride toxicities or, or yeah yeah it was it was a really interesting situation um like you said we have been using the same program for about two or three years we were using basically an inert media that was cocoa and peat based and then we were using um, bottled nutrients um, and at the same time you know peat demand was just through the roof and one of the really big peat producers in canada had a bog fire peat supply was just massively low and they're scraping the bottom of the barrel and, the, and the, the product we were getting in was just like cake flour. It was powder. There was just nothing to it that was allowing good growth. 
and we put in an order and they basically canceled it and said, sorry, we can't supply you. And we only had eight weeks of supply left. So soil media kind of being the foundation of the program, it was really difficult to take them back. Okay. We have to build something new within eight weeks. It, it was a really scary endeavor, which I think is, mm-hmm. you know, when we gave you a call and we started to really pursue all those options and, Yeah, at the same time, I had been tracking for about six months before this some plant health issues, seeing really just necrotic tissue starting to form, yellowing leaves that just died back, just rapid burning, browning of the leaves that get super crispy, and it was really scary. And and at the time, I'm I'm taking tests, and I'm doing uh, soil tests and sap analysis and and tissue tests, and I, I was seeing PPM levels of chloride up in the six, seven, eight thousand PPMs in the tissue, and the plants were just dying back massively, and it was terrifying to deal with. And I tested everything from our our nutrients to our supply lines, our recipes, our soil, every single cultivar, our plant sap, uh, soil solution saturated paste, our you know M3 test. I went down a rabbit hole of tests. I even tested you know the piping between our rooms to see what is being scraped away from potentially metallic pipes and stuff. And um, circle back around and conclusively prove that the issue was with this fertilizer that we were buying. And I reached out and they just, you know, flat out denied it. And, and six to nine months later, come back around spring of 2021, we're kind of faced with this issue. And Jeremy and I ended up meeting with some of the um, executives of that company and, and showed them like, Hey, this is a really big issue. And they confided to us that they did in fact change their recipe and they didn't really think it was going to affect growers and, Lo and behold, it had a massive effect on our output and the value of the company and, and how everything was going. So we ended up in this position of of having to completely change our program from soil to nutrient and fertilizer and do all of it in about two months time period. And we were coming off our biggest year ever, just a record breaking year from twenty twenty and having, you know, incredible output, really happy with where we were positioned in the industry and, and now suddenly our whole program just like crumbled in our hands and we um we kind of took a step back jeremy and i and and we had a i remember one day we were sitting in the office and we had a really great conversation about you know what is the future of proof and where do we want to take this brand and and what are our core values and we agreed upon that we wanted to stay organic but in in this day and age i think jeremy and i both agree that organic is never really enough we want to move in a more sustainable model a, a, a more advanced method it's there's so many brands that just tack organic onto their their label and it doesn't really mean much. It doesn't mean it's, you know, ecologically what's best for um the planet. And so we 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 definitely decided upon early on that we wanted to go with living soil and we talked to a number of different people and we called you and had great conversation and really happy with the soil and I think one of the biggest issues that came up is uh you know, the first challenge was container sizes. Our, our facility was designed for two-gallon pots, and the program that we were, had been running for three years was three-gallon pots, and now we're forced with this issue of living soil, which, you know, we're being told should probably be grown in, you know, 20, 30, 30-gallon 30 pots or beds, ideally, and uh, I think that was a really difficult situation that we just kind of had to trust our ability to figure it out, and um, I know you were curious about that container pot issue as well, and... Um, yeah, it, it, it's been a long road, and now we've, we've settled in 10-gallon pots with a really interesting method of kind of using traditional fertilizers, still through drip injection, and 
had to kind of match the depletion of the soil with what we're putting in. And it's been a very fascinating process. I can, you want to talk about that or if you want me to go back and. Yeah, let's, I, that, I think, I think we can go right into that. I will just add that normally, um, well, so let me give a little more context here. Um, just from, and, and correct sure. me if I get this wrong. Uh, one of the, one of Jeremy Plum's big goals with proof, it was to create consistent, uh, consistent chemotype expression. So if you were a medical patient walking into a store and you wanted to, and and you, let's say you had really good results from this particular cultivar that proof produced, you know, Jeremy would be able to confidently say that he's going to have the exact same result every, you know, batch after batch. And that, that tends to push you away from living souls and towards, uh, you know, a bottled nutrient or, or a program where you can control every aspect of the plant's fertility. Whereas with living soils, we're, we're giving up a little bit of that control um, and counting on the microbes yeah. in nature to sort of handle that for us. So that's a, that's a little context as to why proof was growing the way they were growing. Um, and normally, too, you know, Jeremy and I talked about this and Sam, you and I talked about how you know, this wasn't the ideal way to make a switch over into another production system. Normally you'd run trials, you, you know, you'd yeah. run one room and see how it performed and collect all that data and then look to improve it and make sure the workflows make sense and SOPs for your current staff. But, um, you weren't able to do all that. You, you kind of had to make the, make a yeah, leap no, of faith. It was, uh, so. We did, we jumped right off the deep end. I mean, we were, we didn't even really have time to, do many trials or really any trials we kind of we initially tried to sneak a couple into some production crops a tray here a tray there and we were just like yeah this isn't really working and it's like you know we have one crop left of our old soil of our old program like we have to make a decision now and exactly what you said yeah jeremy um his, his vision with proof was always have a very consistent product for the end consumer and that's still really important to us and i, I would say we're still able to hit that even in the new program and it's been one of probably the most difficult um, things to really target is just to balance those minerals and that nutrition for the plant so that the end product you're getting is really, really accurate with, with what we're saying it is and just the consistency is there every single time. So yeah, it it was a big leap of faith, um, but happily we've, we've worked through it. um, And so we went from an old inert, you know, three gallon pot, highly liquid injected inline injection drip system where they're just getting a lot of organic liquid feed to using a 10 gallon pot. And we, we ran the first crop, we threw the plants in it and we're like, okay, you know, a 10 gallon pot, as much as we want to do water only, it's, we know it's probably not going to last on nutrients for the size our plants grow. And so at what point does it start to deplete? And at what point do we have to kind of lift it and pick it up with these fertilizers? And that was a really big question for us that we just didn't have the answer to. And so we kind of crossed our fingers through a whole crop into the pots and immediately the plants love the soil. I mean, they just started out looking awesome. And I, I started taking data and collecting tissue and soil samples and just recording this all and plotting it all in graphs and, and really keeping an eye on it. And then about that, that same time frame, we reached out and we're talking to Bryant Mason, um, soil doctor and had really great conversation kind of, triangulating between you um jeremy and i and him and we kind of just established that let's get away from the bottle nutrients let's kind of go go way back to just the basis of fertilizer from organic products and just 
and using powders. And, you know, every single one of these bottled products come from these raw sources anyway. So let's just skip the whole liquid injection and shipping this, you know, massive weight around the country, this massive freight, you know, shipping carbon footprint around the country and just go back to the basis and use this fertilizer. So we went back and now we use pretty much everything attached to a sulfate, you know, gypsum, um, Epsom salt, just really basic stuff. And so, when we switch to this new program with the living soil, we, we're doing 10-gallon pots, and it's, it's working phenomenally. And I think that's something that's really unique and rare for an indoor grower, especially in an organic setting, to use a 10-gallon pot in a living soil with minimal fertilizer inputs and have it work as well as it's working for us. Um, I really started by just observing where our depletion was at on specific nutrients on specific time frames. So... In my program, I, I track and trace every single analyte, you know, whether it's calcium and nitrogen or potassium, phosphorus, manganese, iron. I track every single element in every cultivar in every room, basically every single week. And then I plot those on a graph and I have rolling averages that I, that I track and trace in a dashboard to see how we trend on a weekly basis. And then, you know, I've grabbed what sufficiency ranges exist out there for hemp and I've kind of adapted them to cannabis and then set some of our own to really establish where we want to be at for those ranges. Um, and then the hardest part was, you know, how much do we put in to kind of either step these nutrients up or step them down based on the trends of, of what the plant needs in its specific life cycle phase. So, you know, as the plant goes through flower, you know, it may start to need less and less nitrogen. It, it may want to use more mag. It may uptake more mag. So how do we, not only balance what we're putting in and, and our concentrations and how much is going into the soil, but how do we balance what's being depleted out of the kits already? And that was a, a, a pretty big challenge for me and a, a massive learning curve as I kind of work through those problems. And we're about nine months into the program now and, and about 5% lower on yields than we were in the old one after three years. So extremely happy with where we're at. You know, product quality is just through the roof, our THC scores have gone up from 19% to 27% on average. Um, a lot of new genetics that we're working with, just really happy with the program, but it is entirely novel and new, in my opinion, what we're doing. I've, I, I talk about this a lot at work, that we've kind of just grabbed from so many other methods of cultivation and, and made it work in one. I'm kind of getting back to the technology side of things. I think it's really easy to focus on technology when you're doing hydro and when you're doing cocoa, you know, mineral fertilizers going in. I mean, there's a number of companies out there these days um, that are just focused on volumetric water content and crop steering as a whole. And they're really precise and just watching your EC and your drybacks and, and doing all these really accurate measurements. And when I first started looking into that, you know, I was like, okay, this is really great information, but does this even work in organics? And um, from what I found, the principles of it do, but the sensors and the data that you need to actually drive and make those decisions are not the same. So um, piggybacking off of kind of some of the initial stuff that Brian introduced to us, we, we went way back to just original arometer tensiometers, and we we use those to really match our attention and our to our drybacks rather than volumetric water content. You know, with our soil, we have to pay attention to our matrix potential and and really play a, you know, keep an eye on that data and, and 
play a pivotal role in when we want to trigger certain developments in the crop cycle. Um, when we want to trigger them to flower, when we want them to bulk, when we want them to finish and the maturation, the morphology, we can control a lot of these things based off tension alone. Um, and then, you know, how much water we have to put in in order to hit those specific drybacks with tension rather than volumetric water content. So we've kind of had this original automated facility that we switched to a living soil that's all handcrafted. And we're using, you know, outdoor, quote unquote, technology like 10 diameters indoor with small containers, 10 gallons and using classic powdered fertilizers with a batch tank mixing system. And it's this very crazy model that we've been able to build and work and not only just get to work, but hit record breaking yields again, hit, you know, record breaking THC levels, just greatly improve our quality from a program that was so well defined before and do it all within about six months. Um, it's been really incredible. So, so, so Sam, take me back a little bit here. Um, you're, you're talking about using uh, a, a tensiometer. So you're measuring the moisture tension of the soil and then you're, you're utilizing that data as a way of intentionally uh, stressing the plant at certain stages of growth. Can you, can you kind of explain that a little bit, a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, the, you know, the idea of tension, you know, is, is matrix potential is that the, the soil particles are essentially holding onto their water and roots want that water and they have to overcome a certain level of tension in order to take that water away from the soil. And so a tensiometer essentially measures you know, how hard those roots are having to work in order to take that water away from the soil particles and uptake it. And that's a really, you know, very uh, non-descriptive method of, of what is actually happening on the, in, from a scientific standpoint. But essentially, that's what is the basic principles of it. And so when you think about stress, there's this, been this idea in cannabis cultivation for a very long time that, you know, there's good stress and bad stress. And obviously, nobody wants bad stress on their plants. But there is ways to use stress on a plant to influence how you want that plant to grow. And, and some of these principles have been adopted from um, crop steering and some of them we've just kind of had to create on their, on our own. So as far as using the tensiometers, I think what's really important for us is to limit that stress and have almost no stress in vegetative. And then during flower, there's a few different methods. Um, People kind of tend to go two different paths when it comes to flower. Some people like to stress early in flower at the flip to kind of initiate budding, and then they go back to low stress during bulk to really put the weight onto the plant, and then they stress again late flower um, to finish out the maturation period and get them to really finish. And that's what I kind of adhere to, that methodology. But then there's other people that kind of do the opposite, and they want low stress when you flip to flower, and then stress mid-flower, and then no stress late flower. So there's kind of the inverse of each other. But what I've found to be true is that if we can hit a specific tension but before we water every single time, so for, for instance, vegetatively in our soil, and this is going to change depending on what soil you're at and kind of how you want to grow your plants and at what rate, I like to let my veg plants get above 10 kPa and then not any higher than 15 kPa. And that sweet spot right around 12 is where I want my vegetative moms watered every single time. 
because it gives them enough dryback that oxygen is, you know, getting into those pores. It's getting around those roots. It's helping that plant to breathe. Um, and then you water again and you're replacing that oxygen with more water. But if you wait too long, you're, you're stressing that plant because it's, it's starting to think that it's not going to have enough water to continue growing at the rate it's growing and start, starts to limit its own growth. Versus if you water it too early, not enough oxygen is replacing the water in the pores and you're not getting enough aeration in your root zone. So trying to time it at this perfect interval has been really important for me in how we drive plant health. And so for vegetative, we try to hit, you know, between 10 and 15 kPa, and that's been really big for us. And then for flower, we kind of do the opposite. The method, you know, the, the principle behind that is that when you flip the flower, you want that plant to have just a little bit of stress, just a, just a tiny bit of stress so that plant knows that now I'm not supposed to be growing at max potential. I'm supposed to be putting energy into bud production. So we do a little bit of stress right when we flip the flower by letting that drive back or that tension increase a little bit higher, maybe to 20, 25 before we water. And then after that stretch period of an you know early flower, and they're done stretching and the bud sites are already there. It's, it's not going to be flipping back to vegetative at all. Um, we want that plant to start bulking. So around week two and week three, we start going back to kind of that vegetative irrigation where we're, where we're letting that tension stay pretty low in that 10 to 15 range. And so we're letting that plant get just enough dry back that the roots get oxygen that, um, you know, it, it's happy with that dry back and then we're hitting it with water again. And we're doing that every single day. And the, and the trick is to give it just enough water to get you through to that point so that the next time you need to water the following day, you're at the proper amount of tension. And this will change based on climate factors, how big your pots, the soil types, how vigorous your plants are growing. Everything kind of goes into this. But we found it really impactful to kind of hit these specific times when we're watering do multiple irrigations a day, hit very specific tension measurements from those tensiometers and hit it accurately and consistently. You know, if you have inconsistent watering, you're going to have inconsistent flower as just a very loose correlation there. Um, so tensiometers have been really impactful for us in how we shape the plants. If you want to limit stretch and limit growth, you can increase tension between waterings to limit how much they're able to stretch. If they don't have that water available to the plant, they're not going to be able to put a ton of energy into growth. They're, they're going to be focused on reserving that energy. But if you give them low stress, low tension, and you give them just you know adequate amounts of oxygen replacement in between those waterings, then that plant has no reason to stop growing. You're going to see incredible growth from your plants in both veg and even early flower or bulking if you really want it to. So there's other factors like lighting that come into it when you want to design, you know, the height of your plant and, and how you really control that from a light intensity perspective and your internodal density um, and the overall stretch of the plants. But yeah, tension has been really important for us in soilless mixes. And when you start looking at hydro, it's something that you just, Nobody uses tensiometers really in, in rock wool or even cocoa that much because the matrix potential just, it's not there. It just doesn't exist. It's not something you really have to worry about too much. Hmm. That's, that's really fascinating. And for listeners to save you the time from looking things up, um, if you're familiar with millibar ratings, the kilopascal is just a, a tenth of that. So a, a, a 10 KPA, KPA yep. would be um, 
a hundred millibar, which is, which is interesting. And at some point, you know, you and I haven't talked about this previously. Um, so this is a little bit new to me too, but, uh, you know, some of the people that we work with, like Justin, for example, runs, um, much lower numbers. So much wetter soils, he'll run in that 60 to 80 range or six to eight KPA. Um, whereas you're letting things get a lot drier, um, and, and in general running things a lot drier. So, um, I think that's really interesting. And I think, uh, one component of that we have to look at too, is also, um, your environmental controls, how you're running temperature and humidity in the room and what your VPD is as a, as a relationship to all of these other numbers in terms of how fast your plant yeah. is transpiring. So it's, it gets it's, complicated. <laughs> it's definitely, Oh, Oh, it's very complicated. I was just, I was this morning, I was down at the Willamette research center, um, talking with, uh, um, Dr. Knackley down there. And, and one of the conversations we love having when we're talking about hemp is just like, you know, in a research trial, you try to control everything you can, like, like we, we just want one variable that we can focus on, but there's never just one variable. And when it comes to designing a program, it's just, there's so much going on. It's, it's impossible to try to control everything. So you just kind of try to control as much as you can, but you're absolutely right. I mean, the numbers I, I throw out are not going to be directly able to be taken and, and applied to another system because one of the trials I've done over the past two months is, you know, for a soil that's high organic media, you, you can't exactly send it off to a lab and get your water depletion curve calculated. You know, it's it's not just sand, silt, and clay making up your soil. There's so much organic matter. And so in order to have that depletion curve, one of the things I did was just to physically map it with data. So I took a tensiometer that's digital, um, that's just take takes measurements every 10 minutes, and then I took two um, volumetric water content probes and I put them at very specific levels within the, the pot, um, three inches from the bottom and then five inches from the bottom. And then that two inch ceramic tip on the tensiometer at that same range, the bottom of it is at that three inch and the top of it is at that five inch. And I charted our own water depletion curves on the soil. And I did this with, you know, kiss soil straight out of the bag. I did this with uh, kiss soil that's been used for two months after a plant we had, you know, had called and it's just completely compacted and, it's so root bound and there's just like no pores left. And it's really interesting to, to be able to, you know, read something in a textbook about how pore size changes, you know, your water holding capacity and field capacity and your tension and things like this, and then go physically measure it with sensors and to have that data correlate exactly to what you're reading about. So absolutely, you know, for, for Justin, um, I, I, I don't know him personally and I haven't been up there yet, but I know that they reuse their kits, they amend it, they're doing all these things. And so, over time, that media is going to change. Your porosity is going to change. Your pore size is going to change. So mm-hmm. I would, yeah, absolutely. I would expect them to be running different numbers because even in our system, just the difference of two months in a pot changes kind of those target set points, so to speak, of tension that we're trying to hit. Um, the available water, your, your volumetric water content, at a specific tension is way higher in the kiss when it's fresh because of the large aggregates, the porosity is really fluffy mm-hmm. than it is when it's more utilized. You know, when we start getting into that stuff, that's more root bound, lower pore space, more root density, it becomes really hard to accurately water your plants. And I have this great uh, presentation I gave to my watering team about this to kind of drill it into their heads is, you know, when you have this fresh soil and a low root density plant, 
the water, the soil can hold so much water, but it can also hold oxygen. So your window for irrigation, you know, maybe 12 hours, right? If you accidentally miss and you wait eight hours, you, you water that plant, it's probably not feeling a ton of stress. There's like, a, I measured about a 30% volumetric water content difference before there's a, a 3 kPa difference in that soil when the kiss is fresh. So it can go from 45 VWC down to 25 VWC, and it'll only move from about 6 kPa to 9 kPa. So there you have a ton of water there. Like it's a really slow curve. And then when you start looking at things that are highly compacted, low pore space, you know, really high root density, that soil is starting to break down and there's just not a ton of water holding capacity after it's been used for months. You may drop 5%, you know, from 30 down to 25 volumetric water content and you could have a 10 to 15 kPa difference. So it, it's really, it's really about just trying to see how much stress your plants are having to utilize to get the water they need and then what their water reserves are and how long they have before it runs out. And in that, you know, the biggest factor I tried to drill into the heads of uh, the watering team is that when you have an old compacted plant like a mom that's been around for two or three months, you know, you may start to water it and you're starting to see these overwatering symptoms. And it's not necessarily because you're just, you're, you're giving it too much water. It's because the water holding capacity is so low that the only time it has enough water to actually keep the tension high enough that, so that the plant can take it in is at the same level when all the oxygen is displaced from the media. So there's this change that happens to a point where you can no longer give enough water to the plant without completely displacing oxygen from the soil. And it becomes really difficult to water plants after a specific point. So container size is not only important for available nutrients, but how dense your roots are going to get. And I say we're right on that threshold with our flowering plants. You know, after eight weeks of being in that 10 gallon pot, they're pretty, I wouldn't quite say root bound, but root dense. Mm -hmm. And we can't really go back that past that, you know, eight to nine week maturation cycle without running into some issues. But thankfully we, you know, we pheno hunt and we select cultivars and we kind of build our program to be designed around a, you know, an, an eight week to eight and a half to maybe nine week maturation cycle. Yeah, you brought up a lot of good uh, good points there, um, and I think for folks that want to start playing around with this uh, in their facilities, I think this is definitely something that people should be looking at and kind of figuring out based on the media that they're using um, what what works yeah. uh, in their rooms because you know watering cannot be um, understated. It's it's something that I see over and over again as. Uh, the biggest variable in terms of plant health and um, a lot of times the deficiencies that I see people are, are dealing with is, is a lot of it relates back to improper watering. So dialing in your watering is yeah. just critical. And one of the things that you brought up that is a similarity across both of your facilities, and we'll, we'll get you up to Justin's here sooner or later uh, to check it out, <laughs> but uh, you know, consistent watering um, I mean, they're using blue mats, so they're getting water all the time. Uh, but this idea of increased yeah. water frequency, uh, like what you what you mentioned, is something that's very consistent across both facilities. Um, and, and then staying within a given range, you know, whatever that defined range of, of yeah. watering is, so that you're not getting those big wet and dry cycles that uh, well we used to that you would, you might be more likely to see in hydroponics. Um, Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, like you said, irrigation just, it, it can't be understated. It's, 
actually this a couple of days ago because um, I, I didn't mention this in the bio, but I do go to Oregon State for uh, agronomy and. Um, we were talking in in one of my classes with faculty, and, and the question came up, you know, like what is the the most important climatic factor in crop production? And and it's a really difficult question, right? Because there's just so much that goes into it. You know, you have your your temperature and your light, and you know, pH of your soil and available nutrients and all these other things. And mm-hmm. I guess you know, I settled on I was like, well, it's water. You know, it's it's to me, water is always going to be the most important factor when it comes to crop production. And cannabis tests those limits, right? Because there's just so much else that goes into it. But water, to me, is always kind of the foundation. You start with your media, you start with your nutrients, you start with your water, and then everything else kind of comes comes behind that. You you work on your climate, your temperature, your RH, and then at the very end, you kind of focus on light intensity. Is like the last lever to pull, and that's something that uh, Jeremy has helped to instill into me. Is every time I want to go pull a, a lever for light intensity, we we have to circle around and make sure that, you know, everything else is going good. And um, we don't run, you know, we, we have LEDs that we put in this year. We're, we're almost entirely LED in our facility. That's one of the really big efforts we undertook this past year. But we don't run them, you know, as high as the hydro guys or, or other facilities. We keep them relatively lower than I would say most facilities. And I think part of that is just because we we don't see a need for luxury consumption of light um, in our plants. So. Yeah, there's just so many factors, but irrigation just it can't be understated and and super important. And yeah, want to make sure I covered all those technology topics you wanted to to circle around upon. I I'd, I, I think tensiometers is probably the most important thing for us. Um, some people were wondering. I know I've talked to in the past, but you know why we don't use EC sensors or media sensors. Um, and part of it is we just we don't. We, I've, I've calculated what goes into the media well enough that I don't really worry about how it's sitting in there and staying over time. So that is a little bit backwards to how some people work with cannabis like in cocoa or, or hydro when you're actually getting leachate. But in our new program, we don't have any runoff. I mean, what we put in water and mineral wise, it stays there. We don't have anything that comes out the bottom of the pot, which has been a really awesome thing to happen when we think about, you know, wastewater and waste streams and, um, you know, pollution that happens from really big cannabis facilities using liquid injection fertilizers and whether it's organic or not. I mean, we, we really try to give them just enough so that they're hitting the point of what they need without crazy luxury consumption of these nutrients and in the perfect amount of water so that it evenly saturates and has the right amount of dryback. It's a really tough balance. It's a really tough balance. Yeah, what, uh, real quickly, what PPFD levels at Canopy are you guys currently using? Um, so we hit, so we're between 900 and 1,000 U-moles typically. I mean, we're not, there's a lot of people with the new LEDs that want to push higher. I mean, I've seen stuff as high as 1,700. Um, oh, wow. And a lot of people average in that 12 to 1,400 range is, is pretty common. Um, yeah. But we run our lights pretty low. I mean, we we get up to that range of that 900 to 1,000 pretty quickly, and then it it kind of stays there on average. We're not running any higher um, U-moles in our LEDs than we are with, you know, the couple of rooms that we still have on HPS. They're, they're relatively the same. I think what we get is dimming control, um, better, significantly better efficiency, 
um, and just better spectrum in my opinion. Yeah, that's great. So, um, do you think you you will start to turn the dial on lighting and up lighting intensity, or do you feel like, like like you mentioned, not offering luxury levels? Do you feel like that's the level, sort of where you guys are comfortable in your facility in terms of your yields and output, and and pushing the plant any harder won't necessarily uh, offer enough benefit to offset the amount of wattage or electrical consumption that you'd be getting. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think if there's potential for increased yield, um, there's always that drive to want to push for it, and something that's been ingrained through um, my education with agronomy is that just because it's higher yield doesn't mean it's always worth worth it. Um, you know, sometimes your inputs just creep up higher than that extra little bit of yield will get you, and. So I think there's there's definitely room to go higher, but I think there's room to go higher at specific intervals. So higher light intensity at specific times to control morphology, to control stretch, to increase node density. Um, but I would say on average, I don't really see us going above 1100 or 1150, you know, even when we're doing peak, um, yeah, like peak absolute best cultivation and part of that is just facility design right so one of the reasons people run higher light intensities is because they're not doing trays like us so we have like an even canopy through the whole room we don't get side lighting on the plants we don't you know we have one really even canopy across the entire room versus a lot of the people running hydro or rock wool or things you know greenhouse they're doing like benches like uh, rows table rows where they only have one plant on each row going, you know, maybe a hundred plants long. And so their light intensity has to be good enough, not only to hit the top of the plants, but also down the sides of the plants to try to get those lower buds at all as well versus our cultivation model. We pretty much strip everything back. I mean, we, we go very heavy on our prune and then we just get a really big, even canopy all the way across the top, which is one of those ways that we also control consistency at proof is just to, try to avoid the vertical growth as much as possible from, you know, top to bottom and just have an, a, an even canopy that's kind of on one level all the way throughout the room. Can I ask a little bit about like what your pruning schedule is or philosophies? Even? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll try to give as much info as I can without divulging too much, but so we, we do two prunes and we do them pretty early on in flower. We like to do one, pretty much at the flip and then a couple weeks into flip. And the first one is kind of just to get rid of some of those lower growth, top of plants, kind of shape them a little bit. We don't, we don't do too much. And then the second one we cut out and, and this is really specific for facility design, right? Because I would not recommend our printing style to someone that's growing in a tunnel or a greenhouse or doing hydro that, you know, has side lighting and stuff because they're, they're going to want to leave all these lower branches on, but we strip a ton back kind of in the second, to third week of flower and leave pretty much only the top 20 to 25% of the buds on there. Um, it's not less and, and just really create an even canopy. And we want just great airflow through that bottom of the canopy and, and kind of being pulled up through the, through the canopy as best as possible. But, um, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I think that's probably as much as I can really <laughs> no, that was dive that's into fine. it without giving an actual class on it. Of course. It, and describing pruning is a tough thing to do on a podcast. So I understand. 
Um, yeah. Well, let's let's change topics here. I want to get over because um, when I came to the facility, one of the things that you guys were doing was this uh, tank mixing, an application of yeah. various sulfates. So essentially, I mean, you guys are doing more testing than any other facility I know. Um, I know when I first saw all your tests, I, I was say, like, yeah. do we need this many tests? Like, you know, and, right. and, yeah. you know, we kind of went back and forth on that. And, um, I, I think it'd be, you know, you're, so collecting data for the sake of collecting data is pointless, but collecting data that then you can use yep. to allow yeah, you to make good. good decisions is, is priceless. And that's something that I think, um, Jeremy's told me about you is like, you're very good at taking that data and then using it and um, creating a program around it. And, and that's where I think would be interesting for listeners is sort of one, like what, you know, you, you touched on briefly some of the tests that you're taking, but then how are you taking all of these tests and then creating a program that allows you to target these different, you know, trace, trace elements? Because one thing, uh, yeah. you know, just as background, like for me, and this is something that Bryant and I have philosophically, like it's a minor difference, honestly, um, Brian's great. I, right. I tend to focus more just on the macros. Um, as long as I feel like the micro, yep. the, the, the micro or trace minerals are there, then I feel like we're, we're probably good unless they're like crazy. Um, so my ranges there are a lot bigger. Um, and I tend to not fiddle with it, but you guys, you and, you know, and, and from working with Brian, you guys yeah. are really targeting those. Um, yeah, just talk to me about it. Yeah. So, I think uh, first, just kind of giving a little context around this is going to be super important because I don't want to, I don't want to give advice for people and then they take it and run with it, um, so to speak. So, I completely agree for for your situation when you're building soil that is like a baseline for so many different types of growth and people and situations. Yeah, you, you just want to focus on kind of like these wide ranges, getting enough of those macros, and then micros are pretty easy to supplement on like the facility um, scale, you know. So in my situation, absolutely agree. I, I probably do more testing than anyone <laughs> else or any other facility I've come across. I mean, I've, I've put a lot of faith and time, money, and effort into testing. Um, and it kind of just evolved naturally. When, we're, when we were building this program, I, there was a lot of feedback internally and externally from people that kind of like the old method of growing, I'm going to say old method of growing for cannabis, where you just kind of observe the plant, to keep an eye out for quote unquote deficiency symptoms showing up in the leaves. And then you kind of just like self-diagnose and then you add more or less. And, and that's never been my preferred approach. I am very much a numbers guy and I want to quantify everything and I want it to fit within this certain bracket. And so when we were building, um, the program from scratch we always knew that we were going to start out with just a ton of testing and then slowly back off of that over time and now here we are you know six to nine months nine months is probably when from when we ran like the first crop and we had no idea how it was going to turn out versus six months from when we probably ran the first crop with a actual new fertilizer program that we were like running for the first time to see how it went so so a little ways out from there, um, now I only test a couple times a month, and I still probably test every room and maybe two cultivars from every room. So, you know, I still probably send out 30 to 45 tests a month. That includes both tissue and soil versus before I was sending out 
30 a week. So <laughs> there's a large difference there, and that will continue to dwindle over time to the point where we may only send out at key intervals in the maturation period. But you're, you're absolutely right. Data for the sake of data is um, really fun, but not very practical, especially in a production environment. So when I first started taking the data, I, I did not have the knowledge I knew now, and I was relying heavily on Brian in the lab and another consultant at the time, and just like, you know, like, how do I even take this and interpret it? And I think that's a situation that a lot of cultivators and farmers really end up in. And my education around agronomy and just working with this day in and day out has really helped to kind of evolve my understanding of it. But when I started taking these tests, you know, I got the first test, and I'm like, okay, great, you know, like I have some very rough sufficiency ranges that were, you know, published from various universities around the world on, on hemp at, you know, the week before flower that I'm going to try to correlate to this. But how do you take that and correlate it to veg and the, you know, the pre-flower and then early flower, mid-flower, late flower, you know, how do I kind of track this over time? And those trends, I, I just kind of had to learn and graph over time. But um, when I first get the first data set, you know, I'm like, well, this is great. I see this point in time that this is where my plants are at. And now I can take this and I can, make changes up or down and in the beginning of a nutrient program you can kind of make pretty big changes you know if you're just like bottomed out on nitrogen right you can up your nitrogen or you know if your calcium's at like one percent it's pretty easy to make that change and add more calcium but you know as your program goes on it's harder to make changes almost because you're trying to move them really minute ways you know really really small ways and there's a lot of nutrient interaction going on so the first test comes in, I get it, and I'm, I'm like, great point in time. Then the second test comes in, you know, I only have two papers side by side, but then I get the third and the fourth and the fifth. And, like, I'm in, a month into this, you know, I've got, like, a 100 data sample tests, like, all spread out around me. And I'm like, I have no idea how to take this information and, like, try to keep track of it and watch the trends of everything. So I developed a, a, a tracking model kind of just, out of necessity where I, I take all that data and I put it into a table form in Excel and I do these really basic graphs, you know, to kind of track stuff. And I, I, I was, I was tracking information like strains and data samples and plant health, and you know, where all those values of the analytes are at and then using graphs to kind of track that on a day of maturation cycle. And even still that was um, good, but it, it got convoluted when I started getting up into having, you know, six to 10,000 different data points in, in a, in a single data set, you know, like for my soil, I think I have like 10,000 data points at this point and for tissue, probably a little bit more than that. So wow. at, after time, you know, I end up having a, a hundred different tiny little graphs that only track individual cultivars. And it, it got to a point where there's a couple of different things you need from your data. You need to know what an individual crop in an individual cultivar in an individual room is doing when you have multiple rooms, right? You can't just take that one room and try to apply it to everything. But at the same time, you need to change a feed program that affects everything. And so you need both the macro and the micro picture of it all. And so recently about right before Christmas vacation, I filled out this new dashboard, which I don't think I've had a chance to show you, but you'll, you'll love it. It, it takes all of those data points and all those data sets and has them in sing, singular tables and then queries them into this dashboard. And I can see and observe any specific analyte I want on a single dashboard over a average week of maturation for any specific cultivar, any specific crop, any specific room. And I can visually just see how those analytes move over time. So 
I can see where we start with calcium at the start of flower. And, you know, I know that's a combination of what's already in the kiss versus what I'm putting in. And I can see that trend line rise and fall from week zero to week one to week two to week three and have a trend line that actually maps that average across that period. And at the same time on that graph, I can, I have the sufficiency ranges that are, um, you know, there's, there's not great publication data on sufficiency range for cannabis. In my opinion, there is some out there that is the best that we have, but I don't think it's conclusive at all yet. Um, but I took those and I ran with them and I've kind of moved them based on what I thought is, is best and what I've observed from a plant health and recorded from a plant health perspective. And so I have this dashboard that, like you said, it has to be practical, that data. And I, I study this data daily and weekly now to the point where every single time I add a new data set, it's this self-learning data model that just continues to evolve over time. I can see how we went from having a ton of our nutrients, you know, deficient or toxic or out of whack during week five initially with the program to now, I would say pretty much all except maybe one or two elements are just exactly where we want them to be. I mean, they are dialed in. And I even had a call last week with Bryant where we're just, I call them up and we're like, well, you know, at this point, it's, we're, we're pretty stable. It's like, maybe you adjust something here, maybe you adjust something there. And so it's been really fascinating the past six months to just dive into this nutrient program, take all this data, you know, convert it to something useful, go apply it back to the plants and then see positive results. It's been a massive learning experience and undertaking. And, and I'd say, uh, you know, my goal is that by the end of January here, that the nutrient program is finished and stabilized and, it is basically automated to the point where I can go and focus on other things. Now I can start focusing on dialing in our pruning. I can dial in our lighting. I can dial in our BTD and all these other variables, you know, that you have on the table. But for the past year, nutrients have been the, you know, the, the biggest limiting factor when it comes to yield. And thankfully we're pretty much over that hurdle and we're back to hitting record breaking yields and we'll just, we'll, we'll keep moving along. But I, I completely agree. There's, there's no like there's no great training manual on how to build a facility specific data set and how to take these you know everyone recommends oh go to go get a soil sample oh get a you know tissue sample but short of having a full-time consultant how do you take that as a grower as a cultivator or, you know whether you're home or a large commercial operation and collect that data and correlate that to yield correlate that to plant health into influence your decisions and have proof of why you're doing this throughout those changes mm-hmm. and and guide your program along the way it's it's not something that i think is easily understood in the in the cannabis space oh i totally agree and, and one thing i want to highlight that you mentioned is this idea of waiting until you see a deficiency in your plant well at, at that point really it's too late you've already stressed yeah. your plant so yep um and I'll be the first to admit I need to learn a lot more about tissue testing. It wasn't something that was traditionally available to cannabis growers, and so it's something that yeah. I need to um, educate myself on here. Um, so that's great. You're able to you're able to work with with that data and and a lab to get that testing. Um, out of out of curiosity, what sorts of trends did you find with our soil for people who are listening and and maybe use our soil in terms of things to watch for? Um, yeah, you know, being in containers that, that you like found you said, that bad. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting. I mean, the, so I don't we we kind of touched on it, but the whole premise behind the container thing is like living soil will work in any container, but 
obviously the bigger you go, the less additional fertilizer you have to put in because there's a bigger reserve, there's a bigger bank. So if you if you do a 30-gallon or a 40-gallon or whatever size you go up to, right, you can do a water-only program for the most part and not really have to put anything in. But for a 10-gallon container, it wasn't a question of if we would or we wouldn't run out of nutrients. It was more a question of when we would and what ones we would be running out of first. And and you mentioned, you know, as a, as a soil builder, your focus is kind of on those macros. And most of the micros are kind of just there naturally from some of the inputs that you utilize. But um, micros is important, uh, really important in media that buffers high pH. I think one of the things that was really beneficial is we brought um, a, a close associate in not too long ago because we were seeing like manganese uptake like really high. And we were using just like a tiny bit of manganese, but not anything like that we would, you know, bat an eye at. And I was really confused. I'm like, so, and like I pulled all the manganese out of the program and I was like, okay, I'm just, I just won't put it in anymore. And we were still getting this, this issue. And I was like, man, I'm just like scratching my head. And turns out um, that it's, it's one of those things where you wouldn't be able to just like look at a leaf and know what is going on because the, the plant is showing manganese toxicity, right? And manganese toxicity is this very interesting, like camouflage, purplish, reddish, brown, like, very, very unique coloration that's going on, um, kind of this distorting, whirling of the leaves. And what, what's happening is that with the soil kind of buffering around a 7.0 pH, 6.8 to like a 7.1, it's pretty high, but a good range in my opinion. But iron oxidizes at that point. It precipitates out. Um, you know, it essentially becomes rust in your soil, so it's not readily available to the plant. So whenever that plant runs out of iron availability, it starts taking up that manganese in replacement of it. And we were just getting a huge uh, flush of manganese into the plant. So it was just like running into it. And so one of the ways I, I changed that is we just, we added iron to our weekly feed program before I was adding micros at the beginning of flower and then hoping that they would just like, there would be a reserve of them to kind of last throughout that whole cycle. But iron was just precipitating out immediately and manganese was becoming hyper available and just getting taken into the plant. So now I push iron weekly, two times a week, and just low concentrations, like in the 10 to 15 ppm range in solution. Um, and it just, it keeps it available to the plant at all times. So I don't see any iron issues. The manganese issue has gone away. But, you know, specifically with your soil, it, I think it's amazing. It's really great. Like you can take a plant, put it into it, and it's immediately happy. And then there's some small optimization you can do from there. Um, there's a great amount of calcium. So, I, I, you know, if people are trying to take your soil and then throw calcium nitrate at it, I, it's probably probably not the right path to, to go. Um, but uh, calcium is, is great in it. It buffers kind of on the higher pH. So those things that do have limited availability at high pH range, just take a peek at those and, and kind of see how your plant is holding up. But we really don't have to supplement a ton. You know, those first three, four weeks of flower, um, we, we do input some stuff, but it's mostly uh, luxury feed. And it's putting it into the soil so that by the time what's available in the KISS runs out around week four, um, the stuff we've been putting in for the past few weeks is becoming available and it's starting to be taken into the plant. So there's this kind of handoff from what is in the KISS to what we're feeding that has to happen about halfway through flower. And it's such a pivotal point in time. But... Um, Iron, iron is super important. The other micros, I don't have to worry about too much. I, I honestly don't really put much of anything in other than iron. Um, 
magnesium is something that when you have super high calcium in the soil, mm-hmm. um, and we also add, uh, you know, uh, sulfate of potash. So we're adding in potassium as well. That, that mag can kind of become a little restricted and we've seen really great results with just pushing either magnesium foliars and veg, or just by adding um, a little bit of mag into that, that feeding program and kind of boosting that. So. Wow. We haven't talked about this until, uh, on air here. So some of this is new to me. It's really interesting. Yeah. Until uh, now. <laughs> yeah. I, I got to show you the, the dashboard and some of the, the data I've been collecting. It's really, really fascinating, but overall, I mean, like for someone that wants a soil that they can use a, a large pot or a large container or even a bed or something like that and just put a plant into it and it, it does 95% of the work for them. Yeah. Kiss, kiss organics all the way. I mean, it's, it's well, I, amazing. Our facility is, in this really unique position where we're just restricted by container size and we kind of have to pick up a little of the work halfway through flower. So, but yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that. It's been great to work with you guys. Um, the iron thing is really interesting. Uh, the magnesium thing is, um, not unexpected to me because of the high calcium levels. Uh, I, I could see where magnesium could be, you know, potentially optimized by adding a little bit more. Um, you have to be careful with magnesium because it will raise your, your pH. If you're, if in a lot of the ways that yeah. people are adding it, cause it is a cation too. So, um, yeah, there's yeah. so many, it, it's such an interesting, all the dynamics and the way these minerals, uh, work together with biology and the physical properties of the soil to optimize plant health. Um, yeah. And I hope people will start looking at this and, and utilizing testing. Um, one of the things that you brought up that I think is, important is, you know, people get stuck because they're like, okay, well, I can go get a soil test, but then what the heck do I do with this thing? Like, do I have to pay someone else to look at it and give me results? And, you know, there's a lot of people doing that with varying abilities and quality. Um, You and I are both, you know, friends with and fans of Bryant Mason over at Soil Doctor Consulting. Um, He does have a Yep. He does have a course. Um, I'm going to get him back on the podcast, but he does have a course where he teaches you how to evaluate a soil test that you can sign up for. And I think there's a, actually a coupon yeah. code. Uh, if you put in the Kiss Organics, you can save a, I think 100 bucks or something, 200 bucks off the test, off the course. But. Yeah, and I completely stand behind that. But, you know, both Jeremy and I have uh, gone through that course and looked at it, and I've had a ton of conversation with Brian. And, you know, for anyone that is kind of in that position of like, okay, you know, I do get a soil test, now what? Definitely utilize his course and also utilize his, you know, consulting. He's, he's been immensely helpful in just um, kind of building a foundation for us and then circling back around and just kind of giving, it, it's really difficult to like build a program almost by myself and then be like, okay, you know, <laughs> I, I should probably get a second opinion on this and, and, and talk to someone else and verify and every single time we talk, it's just like, really confirming for the work we're doing and moving forward. And, and so can't say enough about him. He, he's an awesome person and highly recommend him to anyone listening. Yeah. So you can, you can get a test through Logan labs, send it off to Bryant and he'll give you a result. That is a great option for people um, who don't have the time yep. or energy to, to, you know, want to learn all of it themselves. Um, and I don't want this to turn into a, a, you know, shameless plug for kiss, but if you are using our soil, we will customize a <laughs> nutrient pack for you, um, for free. If you send us a Logan test test of your soil and if it's our soil, we offer that as a service, but, um, we're not doing outside testing, uh, just due to, I don't have the time to do it. And, and Bryant's already doing a better job than I could at it. So, uh, <laughs> I don't need to reinvent the wheel. Um, 
but getting back to uh, this this testing stuff, so I, I do want to ask you. You mentioned you're adding iron. You mentioned you're adding uh, magnesium. Um, you mentioned you're doing a lot of these in sulfate form. Can you talk a little bit about how you you know what products, or, or I guess not products, but like what amendments are you using to uh, raise yeah. these particular nutrients? Yeah, that's been um, it's been really fascinating. We've just kind of taken like a I don't, I don't know, a 30 year step back because obviously when you go to any other farm production, right? I mean, there's, if you go to outdoor ag or, you know, any kind of vegetable or produce or anything, people amend their fertilizers with, you know, raw products. They're, they're, they amend their fields and stuff with the raw products versus cannabis has this very interesting um, hierarchy of nutrients where it's like, you know, cannabis nutrients, there's over a hundred different brands of cannabis nutrients and they all pretty much come from the same place. You know, they're, they all use the same raw ingredients, the same base ingredients. And so one of the things that I, I definitely adopted from Brian and completely agree with is like, just stop paying to ship water and to, to have someone else, you know, build this nutrient for you when you have so much more control using those raw products yourself. So pretty much everything I use other than two products is going to be attached to a sulfate. They're all OMRI certified. They're all, um, you know, just, just base ingredients. So pretty much everything other than nitrogen and phosphorus is, uh, is coming from a sulfate form. So, you know, calcium, we're using gypsum, calcium sulfate, magnesium, you're using Epsom salt, um, iron sulfate, sulfate of potash, manganese sulfate, Everything is basically sulfate attached. The only, you know, raw powder that we're not would be like um, sodium borate, but we, I have no need to add boron pretty much at any time. We're always at a good level. So um, I also don't like putting sodium into the, the soil. So I, I just, I never really use that. Every the, the main ones I use, we honestly don't put in much. I use um, the nitrogen we use is like the Ferticel Explorer, the powdered based soy protein um, powder. It, it's, Good. You could also use like Crow or Secret. It's pretty much the same thing. Um, and then I use gypsum. I use a little bit of mag for like foliars. I use sulfate of potash and um, yeah, some some CFOS for phosphorus. And that's pretty much it. And, and iron, iron sulfate. But other than that, I mean, I I think I only use four of the products out of you know, I, I have every single one on hand in case for some reason a, something pops up on a specific crop. But the only thing we use actively is gypsum, Epsom salt, CFOS, uh, Ferticel Explorer, and iron sulfate and uh, potassium sulfate. So it's really basic. And the way I have it, like you said, you mentioned that we use a batch tank system now, which has been uh, a big change for us because we used to do inline injection. So we have a batch tank that we mix everything in and then for simplicity we only mix one recipe a day i have this schedule built out so that you know mondays and thursdays we have one recipe tuesdays and fridays we have one recipe wednesdays and sundays we have another recipe and then saturdays is when we introduce like um, biologicals like microorganisms and stuff uh, into the into the soil so I, I really only use three recipes and one of them is just kind of your your nitrogen and iron another one is your um, calcium and potassium and the other one's mag and they just get that at varying amounts whether they're in veg uh pre-flower early mid or late flower and i just kind of manipulate the volumes going into the soil 
and track where that data is um, on the soil test and in the tissue. And I can kind of, I don't even have to change the concentrations of the feeds. I just change how much volume of the feeds is going into the pot on an individual crop or a you know, whole facility-wide basis. And it makes it really easy to control. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I'm just trying to think if there's anything else uh, we could share for, uh, you know, a facility that's listening that wanted to try and embark on this path of collecting more data and then using it to make some of these actionable yeah. decisions. Is is there any advice you would have? Because it is pretty daunting to think about. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're kind of through the worst of it, but um, yeah, where do you yeah. start? I think... Yeah, that's, that's a great question because I, you know, for everything I've learned over this past year, I don't have 20 years experience working with these nutrients. So it's, um, it's been a lot really fast. And for anyone listening, I would say start like, first off, just don't guess, right? I mean, if you see a deficiency on a leaf, you don't, don't just guess and apply something. Testing has a really important place in agricultural and, and production and just utilize the experts around you, um, whether that be Bryant, whether that be your local university, obviously here in Portland, I go to Oregon State, Oregon State um, has no affiliation with cannabis, but they are able to work with hemp. And there's a lot of universities around the country that are able to work with hemp. And so most of that data, you know, correlates to each other. So if you're having questions about um, nutrients just utilize the resources around you like you said you can do testing through logan labs but they also offer you know recommendations based on their own test brian has really great advice and he has his own course built around nutrients um, not entirely for cannabis but you can use everything in it for cannabis um, and so it's there's just a massive amount of resources there but they're they're often hidden i mean the nutrient industry in cannabis is so overpowering. None of the nutrient companies are going to tell you like, Oh yeah, you know, you just go, just go pay, you know, 10% of the cost of our nutrients by buying the raw product and being able to control calcium individually rather than having to put in, you know, five nutrients at a time. Like it's, that's not mainstream in the cannabis industry these days. So trying to read between the lines, utilize local universities, utilize university research, utilize crop consultants, utilize labs, utilize people like you that are building an awesome product and kiss soil. So it gives you a strong foundation and then know how to organize your data. Um, like you said, data for data's sake is never really good in a production model. So take that data and have a way to track it and trace it and to correlate it to other things. I'm talking with, you know, Suzanne, uh, Wainwright Evans, the amazing entomologist, you can correlate these, uh, mineral concentrations to pest pressure. You can correlate it to, um, you know, yield. Obviously, you can correlate it to plant health. You can correlate it to how much you water. You can correlate it to all these different factors. But you have to have that data organized digitally in a table in a spreadsheet. You have to be able to to use it and to manipulate it at your will. So, don't just save it on paper and put it in a folder and put it in a box and stash it away and try to remember it all. It's really great to take the 20 minutes to just transfer it to a digital file, catalog it, organize it, and, and to use it to track your program overall. Yeah, and I I guess I'm, got, it got me thinking. Um, <laughs> but one of the things I was going to say is uh, be sure to take some pictures of your plant too so you can have a visual representation of what this test 
actually uh, actually yeah. correlates with visually. So you can go back and yeah. look at your crop. And then um, if you are doing working with an agronomist, uh, make sure they're familiar that, with soilless media because a lot of the people um, are growing in essentially yeah. peat-based or cocoa-based soils, which is very, yep. very, very different than actual sand, silt, and clay soils. So yep. um, a lot of agronomists aren't comfortable, and a lot of the tests don't correlate well. Like uh, Bryant did a great Instagram yeah. post the other day talking about how we can't we can't look at cation exchange capacity the same. Um, that number isn't really relevant yeah. on a Malik three test, for example. So. Uh, that's just something yep. to be aware of. And then um, the other thing I was going to say on this is uh, when it comes to tissue testing, you mentioned that there were some sufficiency ranges that were already published. Is that something that I'd be able to share on the podcast page when we put out the podcast? Yeah. So um, there's some great ones out of North Carolina, North Carolina State, North Carolina University, I believe. Um, and yeah, I can I can share those. And they're they're good foundations, but I wouldn't say to entirely rely on them. Brian also has some really great ranges um, from from his experience that I believe are in his program um, that are that are awesome to utilize. So all the university ones out there, just remember that they can't touch cannabis right now. So it's with hemp, and most of them are doing testing that is either not tracked in the maturation cycle, meaning that it could be done in veg, it could be done in flower, it could be done pre-flower, it could be done at any of these times. Mm -hmm. They're also testing a wide variety of hemp genetics. And one of the things I remember reading in one of those uh, publications is that, you know, the max sufficiency range for one cultivar was below the minimum sufficiency range of another one for, I think it was either nitrogen or calcium. So there's, there's a really wide range that's genetic specific. Um, so I will, I'll, yeah, I'll try to get those over to you and, um, see if I can kind of give you some of those base values to go off of, but, but yeah, it, it's definitely something you have to kind of figure out for your own facility and take up or down. Don't, don't just, you know, double your calcium because some university growing hemp says that it's the proper amount to grow calcium at the end of the day, you know, your plants best, you know, when they look healthy, um, you know, when they're yielding the best. So if things are yielding well and the data is just slightly off. You don't have to change something if you're getting good results. Yeah, so it, all the more reason to collect data for your own facility and your own genetics. And then also, when you do have a good, you know, bumper crop, you know, your best yields, make sure to take a test so you know what your targets are for that cultivar and what you did in that room so that you have, you know, essentially, you've, yep. you've essentially created your targets in, in, a, in a certain respect. So, um that's a good way to look approach yeah. it from the other range. It's not always about a deficiency. Sometimes it can be about a optimal yeah. target. So completely agree. That's one of the biggest things I hear from crop consultants all across the country is like, you know, like people come running in terror whenever something is wrong with their facility. And we, they talk to us once or twice, we give them a couple of suggestions and you know, their plants start to look healthy again. And they're like, okay, yeah, I got this now. And they just like, they disappear again. And then they come back four months later panicking when things start going wrong. It's uh it's really important to take note when you're doing things right, if not more important than when things are going wrong. Cause obviously you're never trying to mimic when something is going wrong. You want to always, you know, have that target set point for when things are going right. So, so great advice there. Yeah. And just one thing to end on for people is at the end of the day, it's not the goal of all of this is not the perfect test or the perfect tissue test. It's, it's really about uh, yields. It's about healthy plants. So uh, don't, 
don't drive yourself crazy. If uh, your plants look good and your test is a little bit off, um, sometimes it's better not to tinker. Um, so I just want to leave that as a thought for people in the back of their heads yeah. too. Cause uh, yeah, I mean, there's yeah. sampling errors. There's uh, <laughs> there's a variety of reasons that test result might not line yeah. up, but at the end of the day, yeah. your plants, your, your, your plant health is what we want to look at. So um, yeah. Well, this, you know, I like Jeremy, I could talk to you for hours here. So, um, <laughs> right. We should probably wrap it up, but was there anything, anything, uh, parting you wanted to add regarding, uh, anything we talked about today? I think we pretty much covered a good, a good start. Yeah. I completely agree. We could end up talking forever and ever, but, uh, there's probably enough information there for people to digest and, uh, really appreciate you having me on and, and having the chance to talk and kind of share some of this information and, can't wait to kind of show you some of the new data and dashboards and info we got going on down here. It's, it's been a little bit, so we got to catch up. That'd be great. And I, uh, I look forward to seeing where you guys are, you know, say even a year from now, cause I know you're always, you guys are always moving forward and, uh, improving things. So, uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. Thanks again, Sam. Absolutely. All righty. Thanks, Dad. That was Sam Hofler, and you are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey. I'll post pertinent links on the podcast page at www.kisorganics.com. Just click on the Learn tab and then Podcast. Thanks for listening.